Welcome to WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we are returning to our Candidate Cafe again in this episode. Through this series, we're looking to learn more about the candidates' personalities, what makes them tick. In this episode, you'll hear some highlights from Deval Patrick's back and forth with voters at a room in Manchester's airport diner. Then I'll sit down and chat with the former Massachusetts governor on some of the hot topics of the day. Thanks for listening, and be sure to leave a rating and a review of this podcast after the episode. We'd greatly appreciate it. On a snowy morning, a former Massachusetts governor seeking the White House stopped by the airport diner to get to know a group of first-in-the-nation voters, starting at the very beginning. My first name is Duvall, and I usually get, is it Patrick Duvall or Duvall Patrick? Yeah, yeah. It is the creation of my parents' uh, imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, my, uh, my mother and father, I grew up in Chicago. Patrick faced a life of adversity on the south side of the city. I went to, you know, big, broken, overcrowded urban schools, although I had fabulous teachers. His promise as a student helped him land a spot at the prestigious Milton Academy in Massachusetts. Before sending him back east, his grandparents splurged on a new jacket. But a jacket on the south side of Chicago is a windbreaker. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I come by myself, never seen the campus before, the night before classes, and the next morning all these boys are putting on their blue blazers and their tweed coats, and I have my windbreaker, and I think, oh boy. Patrick ended up bridging those two worlds and rising as an attorney and a businessman until he switched to politics and was elected governor of Massachusetts. He spoke about the darkest day of his administration, the marathon bombing, and how everyone came together in the aftermath of tragedy. And folks just brought their best, you know, the, the, the first responders, the law enforcement, regular citizens, the way they, the kindness they showed to runners and, and visitors. And I think all of that contributed to finding these two terrorist needles in a haystack in, you know, 100 plus hours. People just brought their best. Adam Sexton, WMUR, News 9. Hey, Facebook recently made some changes. Now you're missing out on lots of content from WMUR. But it's easy to stay connected. Go to WMUR's Facebook page, tap follow, then see first. That's it. Just two taps brings you back in the know. Patrick, thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be with you. Thank you. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Uh, So it's a snowy day when we're recording this. Uh, As a former governor, do you ever have a little uh, snow day PTSD in terms of this is one of these things that's like you've got to get it done. People get ticked yeah, off about Yeah, that's this. true. They do. Um, and I, you know, as far as I can tell, uh, everybody's doing what they need to do and, uh, and doing their very best. We got up here in, in plenty of time. The roads were clear. But I remember that uh, when I left office, someone told me, so that, you know, the term ends formally in, in early January. And I remember someone told me, you'll know that, uh, that you're done when on the first big snow you just uh, wake up, look at the clock, and roll over. <laughs> right, because it's no longer, you know, yeah. having to be in it all the time. Right. I'm curious, is there is there a, a strategy involved with that that makes it all the way up to the governor, or is it just go get it and get it done? Because there's only so many resources and all that snow. In terms of uh, snow clearance and, and, and other emergencies, well, certainly um, in Massachusetts, I don't know how everybody does it, but I was very involved. And, um, you know, the uh, I always got a... Uh, uh, a briefing on the preparations, um, on the on the weather tracking, because it can often change. <laughs> Remember, once we called a weather emergency, and it was a perfectly dry day the next day. <laughs> um, and then we had other times where there were you know hundred year blizzards, and we shut down the Mass Pike and asked people to shelter in uh, in place. And that call was great. Um, but yeah, you want to be involved because uh, you're going to hear about it. Um, you need to understand what the preparations are, and if we've 
thought hard about both the big stuff, but also just the requests of folks to check in on their elderly neighbors and folks who are shut in, just to make sure they're okay. Yeah. Uh, shifting gears a little bit here, in uh, our cafe here, you talked about your educational experience, mm -hmm. being able to come to Massachusetts and get sort of a world-class education, even though you had those formative moments uh, growing up in Chicago. Mm -hmm. What's your perspective, though, on school choice? We're seeing a lot of pushback right now from uh, public school advocates, teachers unions, uh, from charter schools, those kinds of things. Do you think charter schools are part of the equation? And I guess what what does a do Paul Patrick education policy so look like, I given your experience? So first of all, I think I think education is an absolutely critical part of enabling the American dream, and I think the American dream is an absolutely critical part of this nation's promise. Um, and I think a uh, big part of why I'm in the race is because I I want to be a part of rebuilding. Indeed, I want to lead the rebuilding of the American dream. Um, and uh, in that respect, I think look. We need quality education within reach of every child. You shouldn't have to leave the south side of Chicago and come to Milton Academy uh, on a scholarship to get, uh, to get a, great, uh, a great education. And I got great elements on the south side of Chicago in those big, broken, uh, overcrowded, and under-resourced uh, schools. But it still raises the question whether um, wh why we make the choice to let some schools be big, broken, overcrowded, and under-resourced. In, uh, uh, in my time as governor, um, you remember we had been on a journey of ed reform for a dozen years or so, um, but we still had persistent achievement gaps. And the kids, uh, Adam, who were stuck in, that, in those gaps were, were poor children. They were children uh, who, uh, who had, uh, you know, who had special needs or kids who spoke, uh, spoke English as a second language. And they are our, our kids too. So rather than just, um, you know, celebrate the fact that we were number one overall in student achievement, we want to get to uh, a truth, which is that every child can learn. They need different, um, they need different strategies, different ways, uh, depending on their learning style and their, uh, and their needs, and I do believe there should be accountability no matter what. So long way round to your question. I found that, and this was one example, that the greatest power of, uh, of the governor, and I think it's true of the president, is the convening power that you can bring to the table people who normally won't meet and collaborate. And we had the, uh, you know, the education policy wonks at the table alongside business people, alongside charter advocates, alongside teachers unions, uh, parent uh, organizations. And we put our, you know, the, the, the point was forget about what's best for the adults. That's a lot of what the argument is. What is best for children? And what are the tools that we can make available that can be adapted for the child or that community that may be different over here than over there? Uh, and that Achievement Gap Act went into, um, uh, went to, into effect about, a, I would say, about a year and changed later. I went to visit a school called the, the Orchard Gardens School, which was before the act described as one of the worst in the city. And, uh, and uh, after a year or so of, of using all of these different tools, longer school day, after school opportunities, um, uh, enrichment um, uh, programs, for some courses, smaller uh, classrooms, and the resources that supported that, they'd gone from one of the worst in the city to one of the best in the state. And it was a proof point um, in real time about what happens when policy actually touches people. So my point is, we need a range of strategies. Um, I'm, I am just kind of tired of the, it's got to be 
choice or district schools has got to be charters or no charters. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's got to be about the kid um, and about that community and how we assure that, uh, that the whole child um, uh, uh, and his or her needs are met by the school environment and what uh, complement of tools and skills and resources, not just ideas, but also resources can make that difference. People of color, the black community, it's always been a huge part of the successful coalition that elects Democrats, but they have more and more of a voice now mm. and are playing more and more of a role in sort of the power dynamics, particularly in this primary. Mm. Is it a problem that there is not a candidate of color in that top tier right now, top four? Well, you know, you, um, the, you talk about the, um, the top tier, and I say this respectfully. Um, I'm not sure that the, if, if the polls, if that's the indicator, tell us very much right now. Um, and I don't think that the uh, that uh, you should presume one should presume that uh, that black or brown uh, voters are going to choose a black or brown candidate simply because the any more than I presume that you know a white voter is going to choose a white candidate just because that voter is uh, uh, is white. Do you um, wince a little bit though when you hear the Vice President Biden say I come out of the the black community in terms of my support? You know, look, I, the, he's, a, he's a friend of mine. He's, he's had my back since he was chair of the Judiciary Committee and I was, uh, I was a nominee for the Civil Rights Division and, um, and we've continued to be, uh, to be friends. Um, any one of us at any given time is going to say something that makes someone else wince. So don't bait me. <laughs> That's all I'm trying to say. Sure. I think, look, the, 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 the African-American uh, voter, um, like any other voter, um, like any other citizen for that matter, has to be paid attention to. And I mean not just asked at the time of election, but engaged in between elections. And I, you, you'll hear me talk a lot about how I want our campaign and our administration to be about everyone everywhere. And that's because, Adam, I think, um, you know, having grown up on the south side of Chicago, having grown up as an African-American uh, uh, man and, um, uh, and having um, traveled and experienced lots of different sectors in my personal and, and professional life, I know there are a whole lot of people who feel left out and left back by, by our politics. And if they feel attention is paid at all, it is at times like these during, uh, during campaigns. And then uh, there's a huge sucking sound as soon as the uh, campaign is over. I will bet you um, there are a whole lot of uh, 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 folks here in New Hampshire who feel that who feel that way. Governor Patrick, thanks for joining us on Good the trail. Good to be with you. Thank appreciate you. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.